Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, today I'm speaking with Ian McGilchrist. Ian is a fellow of All Souls College at Oxford and a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, also a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and he was a research fellow in neuroimaging at Johns Hopkins. And most importantly for our purposes, he's the author of the book The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. And that is the focus of our conversation today. We talk about the differences between the right and left hemispheres of the brain, which are fascinating and consequential, and I think underappreciated. And this gets us into many thorny issues. We discuss the popular misconceptions about these differences, the prospect that consciousness might be partitioned, even in an intact brain, the difference between consciousness and attention, the boundary between the conscious and unconscious mind, how face-to-face encounters differ between the hemispheres, the unique deficits that result from damage to each, the ascendancy of the left hemisphere in modern culture, the possibility that the brain is a mere receiver of mind, people's expectations about surviving death. Anyway, I thought it was a fascinating conversation. We certainly could have gone on for many more hours. And now I bring you Ian McGilchrist. I am here with Ian McGilchrist. Ian, thank you for joining me. It's a great pleasure, Sam. Thank you. So we're about to speak about what I consider one of the most interesting topics in any field. The focus of our conversation is covered really in exhaustive detail in your book, The Master and His Emissary. And there's also a film based on that, which I discovered online last night, The Divided Brain. But before we jump in, what is your academic and intellectual background? All my life, really, I've been interested in philosophical questions, particularly the end of philosophy that accommodates theology. And so at 18, I wanted to go to Oxford and study philosophy and theology. But you had to take an entrance exam in some school subject. And almost at random, I chose English literature. And when I went to interview, they said, oh, you, you, can't, uh, you can't do theology and philosophy. It's not an honors degree. So in 1972 in Oxford, theology and philosophy wasn't an honors degree. Each on their own was, but not the combination. I think it is now, but there we are. So they said, look, you obviously like and are good at English, come and do that. So I did. And I was interested really in the philosophy of literature and the philosophy of aesthetics in a way. And something struck me as very odd about what we were doing. I got a fellowship immediately after graduating, which enabled me to have time to reflect. And I thought there's something that's really troubling me about the way in which we approach literature. Somebody in the past took great pains to create something that is unique, embodied, and largely speaking, implicit. In other words, if you try and unpack it, like explaining a joke or trying to say, well, this is what this poem means, you know, you you really are losing a lot of the value and the meaning. And people came along, you know, in seminar rooms and took the disembodied and made it thoroughly, sorry, took the embodied and made it thoroughly disembodied, took the implicit and made it explicit, and in the process rendered this entirely unique thing, this completely unique experience, something that was utterly general in nature. So I thought there's something wrong with this, and I wrote a book called Against Criticism. And what seemed to me wrong was that we'd become very disembodied in the way that we think about everything. 
in fact, it's something, you know, I've since the earliest days reflected on the way we lead our lives nowadays, that they're over-cerebral in some way. And that the process is somewhat destructive. It has its advantages, but it also has major problems. And I went to the philosophy seminars to discuss the mind-body question, but I found that the philosophers were just altogether too disembodied in their approach. And so I thought, I'd read Oliver Sacks' book, Awakenings. It had just come out around that time. I'm that old. And uh, (laughs) I thought, this is really fascinating. Here's someone who's attended to the individuality of his patients, but made completely amazing philosophical conclude drawn philosophical conclusions that are very important about what happens when something changes your brain or your body and what that does to your your personhood to your to your mind and to to your whole humanity and i thought this is what i want to do so i had to start again study medicine from scratch and then as soon as i qualified and done my basic jobs in in uh, what you'd call internships. I then did a, a little bit of uh, psychiatry and, uh, sorry, a bit of neurology and neurosurgery, and then went to the Maudsley to study psychiatry. And my interest there has all along been in the overlap between mind and body. So that's how I got into being somebody who writes about the mind-body relationship from an embodied point of view. Mm. There's a further question, how did I get into the issue of lateralization? But you may be coming on to that, so we can yeah. take it a bit at a time. Yeah, so, and have you had a psychiatric practice uh, all this time, or, or are you, you retired in that mode? Oh, I'm retired now, yeah. but uh, for, for years I, w- I was a practicing psychiatrist, yeah. First at the Bethlehem and Maudsley Hospital in London, and then privately. Right. So we're going to talk about the divided brain, which is something I've spoken about before, I think, at least in passing, uh, on my podcast and on my app, Waking Up. I've certainly written about it in at least one of my books, but given its strangeness as a phenomenon and its, its relevance to just how we conceive of ourselves as persons, it really is an, it's an underreported finding in science. So I I think we should just describe the phenomenon itself, how we've come to know anything about it. I mean, the basic picture is that the human brain, and, you know, not just human, this this is true of the avian brain and all mammalian brains, but for our purposes, and and most interestingly, our own brains are divided across the, the longitudinal fissure into left and right hemispheres. And this could have worked out in various ways. The two hemispheres could have been functionally identical. They could have shared information perfectly. There could be no differences between them, and one would sort of think that would be the case. And yet, what we have found is that they're quite different, and we're going to go into those differences. And we know this based on the fact that they can be disconnected. So maybe we should actually, before we dive into the split brain phenomenon and how we know any of this stuff. Just explain the title of your book, The Master and His Emissary. What what do you mean by that title? Okay. Well, that's essentially a story which illustrates how I see the relationship between the two hemispheres. Here we're kind of jumping ahead a bit, but 
there's a there's been a general view, the one that I was trained on, that the left hemisphere is uh, the one that does all the heavy lifting and is uh, intelligent and uh, perceptive, and that the right hemisphere is a bit of a kind of a no good. Uh, <laughs> We're not really mm. kind of sure what it is. I mean, it might be there for propping up the left hemisphere to make sure it doesn't fall over. I mean, li- literally, people have talked like that. But I, th- I see them as having developed two entirely different roles. They've been separate in all the brains we know, going right the way down to reptiles and even the networks of insects, of nematode worms, and even the most ancient sea creature that we know of already shows an asymmetrical neural network, Mm. which is very interesting in itself. But uh, what I think has happened in humans is with the evolution of language, we've decided to devote one part of the brain for dealing entirely in theory of the, the, the symbols of experience rather than the gathering of experience itself. And in a new book I'm writing, I actually take the pains to go through all the various ways in which we get a hang on the world. And in all cases, the left hemisphere is not as good at this as the right hemisphere. Why is that? Because the left hemisphere needs to be kept away from that because it's busy doing some theoretical processing. Now, the thing is that, in fact, the right hemisphere is actually more intelligent. And I mean, in terms of IQ, I can. You know, in the book that I've been writing, I've got the the information about that, which sounds a bit odd, but it's also the one that attends much more broadly to the world, perceives more, makes better judgments, is less taken in, tends not to Mm. jump to conclusions in the way the left hemisphere does, has social and emotional understanding in the way the left hemisphere doesn't. And indeed, it is the one that we rely on to be connected to and make sense of the world. When people have a left hemisphere stroke, they carry on, for all intents and purposes, being largely in touch with the same world they were in before. But when they have a right hemisphere stroke, they find it hard to understand what's happening, what people mean when they say things. I mean, their language functions are going, but what does this really mean anymore? So patients who, care, uh, patients who are cared for by people and they have a right hemisphere stroke the main complaint is that they can, these patients lack any human understanding or empathy, whereas the complaint with people who have a left hemisphere stroke is they have difficulty reading and writing. Mm. So he's really on a very different level. So to come back to the master and his emissary, the right hemisphere is in a way the master. The idea I had here was of a spiritual community in which there was a wise spiritual master who looked after the business of a community so that it flourished and grew. And in a while, it became obvious that the master couldn't look after all the daily business of the community and indeed ought not to get involved with it, in fact, if he was to be able to maintain his all-important overview. And so he delegated his brightest and best sort of second-in-command to go about doing the sort of administrative business. But this administrator, while very bright, wasn't bright enough to know what it was he didn't know. And so he thought, what does the master know? What does he know? He's just sitting back at the palace meditating seraphically. I'm the one that does all the hard work here, and I'm the one that knows. And so he took on the mantle of the master, and in the process, because he didn't know what the master knew, 
he was not able to perform his job and the whole community, the master and the emissary fell to ruin. Now, I see that as a parable, very loosely based on a hint in Nietzsche, Mm. to describe the relationship, the advancing relationship between the right and left hemisphere and the way we have ended up in the world today, enthralled to the emissary, to the servant that doesn't really understand what the master would have known and been able to tell us about. We, We could move on from there to just a little reflection on this question that you raised of the divided nature of the brain. Yeah. When I was in medical school, I mean, obviously, we we saw that it was. There it is on the slab, and it's divided. And it was just taken for granted. And nobody really said, why? What on earth is the point of having a mass of neuronal interconnections whose value we seem to believe is predicated on the sheer number of interconnections it can make? Why divide it right down the middle in this way? And as I say, this has been the case in all living creatures that we we know of. Indeed, the corpus callosum that connects the two hemispheres, a band of fibers at the base of the brain that connects about 2% of the fibers of the brain directly, is a mammalian invention. Up until mammals, i.e. in birds and reptiles, amphibians, monotremes, there isn't a corpus callosum at all. So that's fascinating. And indeed, a chap called Hewlings Jackson, who's a great, one of the great fathers of modern yeah. neurology in the 19th century, said, it's not common enough for us to wonder at this fact, that the brain is divided in this way. And when I got to my medical training and so on, this topic of difference between the hemispheres was a really a non, non-subject. It was considered entirely pop psychology. It was tacky. People pled with me, don't, don't, don't allow your career to be tainted. You can do well. Don't do this. You know, don't get involved in this issue. It's all been rubbished a long time ago. But that's actually to go far too far. First of all, it's very clear and undeniable that the two hemispheres do have quite different functions because, or at least they contribute to, I'd rather put it this way, they contribute to a human being in different ways. You can see that when people have strokes in one hemisphere, they have a stroke in the exactly same sort of mirror position in the other hemisphere, the outcome is completely different. So Mm. it's not good enough to say they're just the same. They aren't. And they wouldn't have evolved in this way if there was really no purpose in their difference. The question simply was, what was that difference? And all the things that people used to say back in the 60s and 70s, after the first split brain operations, which was a procedure invented to aid patients who had constant epileptic seizures. And somebody had the idea that it would be a good idea to divide the connection between the two hemispheres so that if a seizure started in one hemisphere, it wouldn't automatically overwhelm the whole brain. The other half would be able to carry on functioning. And indeed, it was a great success in achieving that. But it gave people a window into the difference between these two worlds, because you could actually by clever experimentation, address problems and questions and test out each hemisphere on its own. Mm. And this gave rise to a literature which was, in a way, people jumped to a lot of conclusions rather fast. And the story was, well, the right brain is kind of emotional, but the left brain is rational and it's dependable. It may be a little bit boring, but at least it's very dependable. It tends to be our 
contact with reality. Whereas the right hemisphere is all very well if you want to paint pictures, but you know. And this is just so, so terrible as a way of looking at them. In many ways, it's the inverse of the truth, because I, as I've discovered and explained at length in my works, the left hemisphere is actually less in touch with reality, less reliable, more prone to jump to conclusions, mm. more uh, prone to quick and dirty decisions, and more prone to getting emotional in certain ways. For example, emotions are not all particularly in the right or left hemisphere. But one in particular is especially well represented in the left hemisphere, and that's anger. So it, it is a fascinating topic. Mm. Well, so I want to revisit some of those landmarks that you just sketched, because it's, again, th this is a topic that it seems to me most of culture and even most of scientific culture and even neuroscientific culture has really only glanced at and it's, it's kept at a distance, I think largely because it is so strange. There's something very disconcerting about what we have come to know about the, the organization of the brain here and, and some of its implications. I'm wondering what you, you think about why this topic has been it strikes me as it's almost been treated as a kind of intellectual pornography, right? It, it's been held in disrepute, yeah. as you describe. But, you know, beyond the fact that there's been some cartoonish portrayals of the differences between left and right, and, and there's a kind of pop psychological misinformation that has been spread, is there any other reason why you think this, you know, why you were warned off this as a topic when you were doing your studies? I think there are two main reasons. One is that, it, as you say, it had got into popular culture in a certain way. So it was an ad, you know, the Volvo, a car for your right brain and this kind of thing. And so people went, oh, please, you know, don't, don't let's go near that. So in order to remain aloof, you know, neuroscience says, oh, no, 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 it's not like that, which indeed it isn't. <laughs> but the other reason is that there were some, as I say, some slightly too quick conclusions drawn in the early days, in the 60s and 70s and on into the 80s. And these were based on, I believe, a misconception, which is that the real difference between the two hemispheres was what they do, which is the right answer or the right way, right question, perhaps, to ask of a machine, what does it do? But it's not necessarily the right question to ask of a person. Of a person, one may be more interested in the how, in what way in what manner this is done. And what I discovered fairly early on was that the old division that reason and language was solely the province of the left hemisphere and emotion and visuospatial things, the province of the right hemisphere, that this was not the case. Each was involved in all of those, indeed in everything that we do. Yeah. So where does that leave my, 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 <laughs> my position? Fine, ready to go on a very interesting adventure, because then one says, it's not the, the what, it's the how. And in every case, whatever it is that each hemisphere is dealing with, it deals with it in a reliably, consistently, predictably different way. And what is that? Well, it's to do, I believe, with a problem which is entirely explicable in terms of Darwinian evolutionary advantage. 
So, yeah, before we jump into that, I want to talk about the evolutionary origins of this as, insofar as we can speculate about them and just, just why would it be that brains would be divided and divided in, in the way that they are. But let's describe how we know that the, the hemispheres are so different in our own case, you know, based on the, I just want to summarize the split brain research in a little more detail for people who may not be familiar with it. And the interesting thing here is that the claims that you are going to make about the differences between right and left, and, and you know, you have gone so far as to suggest that the right hemisphere is the, the more competent, the more fully human, the more it is the master rather than the emissary. That is quite different from where science started once we started splitting the hemispheres by cutting the corpus callosum in, in those surgeries you described. And even people who were very close to that research early on felt that they went from thinking that the right hemisphere was in fact unconscious, right? That there was, there was nothing that it was like to be the right hemisphere, that the left hemisphere was entirely the basis for human experience of any kind, to thinking that the right hemisphere, while it might be conscious, it is definitely subhuman. And, and, and you know, Michael Gazzaniga, who, who I know and who, who's very early, as a cognitive neuroscientist studying this, you know, worked under Roger Sperry. You know, he at one point, I'm sure he's he's recanted here, but at one point he suggested that the right hemisphere was essentially beneath a, a chimpanzee in its cognitive abilities. So we have come a long way in in appreciating what the right hemisphere is doing. Ironically, <laughs> maybe it's our maybe it's our left hemisphere that had to be dragged all this way to appreciate what the right hemisphere is doing. <laughs> so let, let's just describe the original right. you know, Sperry experiments, you know, born of the neurosurgeries done by Joe Bogan, and discuss how it is we were able to interrogate the hemispheres separately and know that there there really are, in the case of a divided brain, two different points of view on the world, and, and really two different subjects, two different people mm. in a single mm. human head. Absolutely. And it might be worth just saying that already in the 19th century, people saw that the hemispheres were quite different. Famously, Broca and Dax saw that patients who lost their speech had damage to a certain area only in the left frontal lobe, not in the right, and so forth. And people observing people with strokes, massive strokes in one hemisphere or the other over the subsequent decades often noticed that the subjects seemed to live in a quite different kind of a world. So it wasn't just the split brains that told us this. We should also recall that, and this is a point you make in your book, that long before, a full century before anyone thought of doing the split brain work, we already knew, or someone already knew, that the right hemisphere was sufficient for consciousness because there were neuroanatomists who discovered upon autopsy that people who had lived fully normal lives, you know, which is to say conscious lives, had upon inspection after death only one hemisphere of their brains. Could be the right or it could be the left. And this is yes, born yes. of the fact that people, you know, there are people who are born without one yes. hemisphere or, you know, they suffer some illness or injury very close to birth and manage, you know, developmentally to compensate. And this is just not discovered until 
much later in life. You know, now, now this kind of thing can be discovered during routine neuroimaging. You can discover that a fully intact person is, in fact, missing a hemisphere and have been their entire lives. So we, we already knew that it, the right hemisphere could be conscious, and then we seem to have forgotten that over the course of 100 years of doing neurology and, and neuroscience. Yes, I mean, what you're particularly, I think, alluding to there is the work of Wigan in the 19th century, which yeah. is an amazing figure who, who spent a lot of time in the autopsy room. But I would just like to gloss something, since you've raised that topic, it's slightly different, because if somebody's had only one hemisphere from birth, which can sometimes happen, because there may be a space-occupying sac or lesion that's in the place where the hemisphere should be, you're dealing with something rather different because from the word go, the neural, you know, the central nervous system will have reorganized itself to take into account this element. Yeah. But still, it is true that people who develop normally can certainly live well with the right hemisphere. They're better off with their right hemisphere if they've only got to have one than with the left. Anyway, to come back to the split brain operation, yes, first of all, people were amazed by a couple of things that they just observed without doing any experiments. People were first of all thinking, what would it be like for somebody to have the two halves of their brain completely separate? When I say completely separate, there are a couple of minor fish, minor commissures, um, yeah. commissures that, that, connect, that connect the hemispheres. But to all intents and purposes, the very much the most important had been severed. And the answer to that was that they were remarkably normal, <laughs> as if these two hemispheres could carry on like that without doing a lot of talking to one another. But they did also notice, at least in the early days after the operation, going on for the first months, that sometimes people would show completely conflicting behavior. So a woman would go to the wardrobe to take out a dress with her right hand, and her left hand would take it and put it back and take out a different one. Or somebody would get out money to pay from the wallet, and the other hand would take it away and put it back in his pocket. So this is the kind of thing that you, you saw. I believe there was a case of a, a man trying to embrace his wife with one hand and strangle her with the other. Yes. Well, at least push her away with the other. Right. <laughs> I think the story's got more... It got, it got, <laughs> it got better as it got told. Yeah. But, but it got better. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's right. But, you know, very good, very uh, interesting experiments were devised, very clever, ingenious experiments were devised, whereby, for example, you could give information to just one ear, or you could give conflicting information to the two ears at the same time. And normally, of course, information is shared, but in this case, it wouldn't be shared. And so you could actually have a different input to each hemisphere. And you can also do this visually using a technique called tachistoscopy, in which a different image is put up in the right visual field, which goes to the left hemisphere, from the one that's put up in the left visual field, which goes to the right hemisphere. And you can then ask questions of the person about what they've seen or what they've done. One of the most interesting, I and mean, some of those are rather intricate and would take us a long time to, to, to explain, particularly without a diagram. but. One of the most interesting findings was that when the left hemisphere knew really nothing at all, because the information had all gone to the right hemisphere, 
it would pretend that it knew all about what was going on. So mm. when it was asked, why did you respond in a certain way about which it knew diddly squat? Because that had been the information the right hemisphere had had, and that was why we had responded in that way. It would make something up that was plausible. And yeah. it is, <laughs> one way of looking at it is that the left hemisphere is extraordinarily good at making things up. And it's a bullshitter, in fact. Mm. And this is why Mike Gazzaniga calls it the interpreter, because it can make sense of whatever it sees happening. And it actually seems to believe its own propaganda. <laughs> and yes, just since it seems that the left hemisphere seems to have dominated our politics of late. <laughs> One thing you can see is the confabulatory nature of the left <laughs> hemisphere in the news on an hourly basis. You, you can indeed. And uh, on that, uh, Roger Sperry, who, as you mentioned, was one of the, the, the most important neuroscientists of that era investigating this phenomenon for which he was given the Nobel Prize, said, and he was no mean philosopher, actually, as well as being a neuroscientist, um, he said that the problem with modern Western civilization is that it has relegated, the, the, it ignores the right hemisphere. Anyway. Mm. Mike Gazzaniga has changed his views quite a lot since those early pronouncements. Yeah. I imagine they live on to haunt him slightly. But what pleases me is that some of the things I was saying earlier about the, the way in which the left hemisphere is more prone to bias and more prone to jump to conclusions and make poor judgments actually comes from the work of Nicky Marinsek, who works in Gazzaniga's lab. So mm. obviously things have changed there. But it's been a process of trying to get people to see that just because all we knew was a rather quick and dirty formula at a certain stage, it wasn't enough to dismiss hugely important questions. Why is the brain divided? Why is it asymmetrical, by the way, since the skull that contains it is not? Why is the connection between the hemispheres so much involved with inhibition? rather than mm. facilitation. These were questions that haunted me, and it took me 30 years, basically, to come up with the, what I was able to write in The Master and His Emissary, and another 10 years for what I've just written and I'm hoping will be published in the next 12 months. So, yes, I mean, it didn't start from a very auspicious place, but I was completely convinced that something of great interest was being neglected. And you asked why had people not sort of gone further with it? I think the answer is that to make sense of it would have required 30 years. And in doing so, they would have basically forfeited their career because when they were juniors, their bosses wouldn't have wanted them to do research on lateralization. They said, no, forget it. That's all passe. And as they got further on, they wouldn't have got grants and they wouldn't have got promotion and so on. So actually, very few people have taken the trouble to really look at this in any great depth. And, you know, with all due modesty, I am one of the people who has spent decades really, really getting acquainted with the literature. And so, you know, I know some things about it that there are people who do know them, but it's not in the general culture. I think there may be an, an additional reason here, which is that it's, there's something impossible or, or, or at least very difficult to assimilate about this finding into one's sense of one's own being in the world. I, I want to try to make what we're talking about here 
as subjectively real to people as we can make it. But before, and we'll go further into just the differences between the hemispheres and mm, perhaps mm. what we can start with, with just this, this basic question which you've raised is, you know, why is the brain divided in the first place? And why would it not be functionally symmetrical? But here's what strikes me as most strange about the phenomenon, which you really can just extrapolate from the split brain finding. So the split brain finding is that if you, if you divide the brain surgically by cutting the, the commissures, or at least the corpus callosum, but you know, the, the anterior commissure and the, 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 there are a few others that, that need not be cut but could be cut, and you have this very stark finding where you have just undeniably two points of view, you know, whatever their differences, as we will yet describe, mm. there are two points of view at that point in the, the human mind is, is dual, and the left hand quite literally doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And, uh, you know, reminding people again about the contralateral organization of the nervous system, the, the, as you said, the right hemisphere in a divided brain sees only the left side of the world, and the left hemisphere sees the right side of the world. It's not divided left and right eye, it's the left hemifield within both eyes and, and the right hemifield within both eyes. So you can present an image to the right hemisphere, which the left hemisphere does not see, but because language is so disproportionately subserved by the left hemisphere, certainly in you know, 95% of people, when you're talking to the subject and you say, well, so what did you see? The answer you're getting, you know, though the right hemisphere hears you, the answer you're getting is coming from the left hemisphere that has control of speech. And so you're talking to a person who says, well, I, I didn't see anything. And then in an experiment like this, you could say, well, well just, you know, can you take your, your left hand and reach for the object that you, you may or may not have seen? And then at that point, the right hemisphere, which is in full control of the left hand or near full control of the left hand, can uh, reach and pick up an object, which is, is in fact the object that was presented to it, you know, visually. And then when asked, well, why did you pick up this key or egg or whatever the object was? As you point out, the left hemisphere at that point confabulates and tells a story. It seems to always have a story as to why, in this case, the left hand over which it has no control did what it did. And it shows that it has basically no you know, re reality testing mechanism le left to it, left to its own devices. It will just publicize <laughs> some account yes. of the world. And uh, you know, it's apparently the most credulous person on earth. The amazing thing about this is if you extrapolate from this finding that you know a divided brain gives you two people, right, two fairly different people, and you know even if they were the the same in their emotional tone and and their cognitive styles, which they're not, there would still be two of them at this point, two different points of view on the world. If you extrapolate from that and realize that, you know, as you said, the, an intact corpus callosum only terminates on a mere 2% of cortical neurons, right? I mean, it's not that every neuron is connected with every other like neuron across the hemispheres, right? So we're, we're, we have to be imperfectly connected, even in the healthiest, most intact brain, which is to say there isn't perfect information sharing across the hemispheres. 
And so it opens the question, to what degree are we dual even now? To what degree is there, could there be islands of consciousness in an intact brain or shifting, overlapping, non-shared spaces of consciousness, whereas it is something that it's like to be part of the right hemisphere, and there's something that it's like to be part of the left hemisphere, and in any given moment, these points of view may not be unified. They may be, I'm agnostic as to whether or not this is a totally fluid situation, and they can come to be unified and, and separate again, but it gives a kind of Freudian spooky picture of the mind, that the unconscious, from the point of view of the conscious you in this moment, may in fact be conscious, you know, and, and looking over your shoulder, in a sense. The, the phenomenology with which any person is identified subjectively may not be the totality of the subjectivity, the conscious subjectivity in their own brain. And I think there's something about that picture that is so weird that people just don't want to think about it. I think it, yes, you've pointed to something definitely that I don't think can be dismissed. But I think I'd like to sort of moderate that picture a little. Sure. And the first is that we all grow up with information coming to us from both halves of the world. And it is communicated through the body and into the brain using both endocrine transmitters as well as the neurological system that we are describing. Right. And the, the normal person is receiving a picture all around of the world, and this information is being taken as a whole. So on the whole, we don't find ourselves noticing this. In fact, if we noticed it, it would be very damaging for us because we would find ourselves constantly torn like the person who's trying to pay and putting the money back in the, in the pocket. And it's also worth saying that after usually about the first five or six months, most split brain subjects started to lose this intermanual conflict, as it's called. So it's something that the person sort of accommodated to. But it's also not just true of, I mean, on the other hand, it's also not just split brain patients that must be thinking very differently and seeing the world very differently because you can produce this effect experimentally in normal subjects using transcranial magnetic stimulation, mm. which is a technique whereby you can painlessly stimulate or suppress, uh, depending on the frequency of the pulses, areas of the brain. And I don't know, but you've probably talked about that at a, in another podcast. But in any case, the point is this. When you do that, something full-fledged and ready to go is released. So it's not like it, it was there. You know, when you, when you knock out the left hemisphere and knock out the right hemisphere, you find instantaneously decisions being made which are characteristic of what we know to be the way of the right or the left hemisphere. And this can actually be advantageous in certain circumstances, so that problem-solving of a certain kind. Um, Alan Snyder in Sydney has experimented on this. Uh, can be facilitated by suppressing the left frontal cortex and enhancing the right frontal cortex so that complex problems, that, including mathematical problems, can be more easily solved. 
in any case, all I'm really saying there is that, yes, there is something spooky, and it's not just in split-brain patients. I acknowledge that because, as I say, it's there and ready to go. And when mm. people have a stroke and they suddenly start experiencing the world differently, you know, how did that happen just like that unless it was there and ready to go in the intact individual? So we know that is the case. But I suppose I'm less troubled by the idea that there might be two people here. It looks like that, but then it would only be like that if, as it were, we were sure that whatever it is that is my left hemisphere's consciousness and my right hemisphere's consciousness were generated straight out of those hemispheres. Now, I suspect that this may be a point on which we, we might differ. I'm not convinced that the brain is merely a producer or secretor of consciousness. Mm. So it becomes possible to think of consciousness that is a flow and that is transmitted, transduced by the brain. So you can see the brain as something that is receiving a stream of information to both hemispheres simultaneously and together, and, and that that is producing the whole personal experience. But that what happens when you artificially divide the brain is that it's rather like an island in a stream where the stream has to go either side of the island and then reconvene again. And the stories I've been telling about the coming together and the coming separately of the two hemispheres might be better thought of in terms of such a metaphor. That's all really I'm suggesting. Mm. I think it's too extreme to say that there are two persons that are, you know, there's Sam Harris left and Sam Harris right. I don't think that's a, uh, I think that's too simple. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't suggesting that. I, I guess what I was suggesting, though, is that in any picture other than perfect information sharing, then you have to ask yourself, mm. what is left out and what are the consequences of its being left mm. out for subjectivity in any given moment and however fluid you want to make it anything less than perfect mm. access across the commissures mm. gives you this venn diagram where of of conscious experience wherein the two circles don't completely overlap and become one so then you have to ask yourself well what is the penumbra like where the left doesn't share what the right is in fact experiencing and vice versa. And yes. again, this could be completely fluid so that, you know, the, you could have more global states of the hemispheres where there is a kind of synchrony, and synchrony may in fact be w what is mediating the sharing of, of, you know, a conscious percept or thought in any given moment. But again, the, the spooky part for me is not, not so much that much of what the brain is doing is unconscious, you know, or outside the experience of the conscious subject in any moment. It's the idea that some of what's outside your experience as a conscious subject in this moment may itself be conscious, right? That's the thing that just oh yes makes the hair stand up on the back of one's neck. And well, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, may I? Yeah, um, just there's so much that you're 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 commenting on there that's so important. I mean, something we might come to later because it comes back to the question why the two hemispheres are separate in the way that they are, is that much of the traffic, as you describe it, 
bringing information together across the corpus callosum is inhibitory. And much of the effect of the corpus callosum is for one hemisphere to say, I'm dealing with this. You keep out of it because that's just going to make the matter confused and I'll work slower. Mm. So even in a perfectly functioning brain where, as it were, at one level, the communication is good, some of the functional effect of the communication is not positive but negative. It's not facilitation, it's inhibition. But even more so, I wanted to comment on the question about consciousness because, of course, consciousness means many different things. And in one sense, we think that consciousness is what is in my mind that I'm aware of right now and I'm focusing on. But that is variously estimated to be between half a percent and five percent of what's going on in one's brain. In fact, I read a paper in which the the authors said that 99.44% of brain activity was not within the field of consciousness, mm. which is alarmingly precise, but anyway, it makes the point. But the way I would see that is that there is also material that can quite quickly become conscious. It's just that it's not conscious now right. for reasons, reasons of expediency. If we are to function, we simply can't be conscious of many things of which we have consciousness at a different level. And that can be brought into effect like that if it's necessary. So the way I see it is that one distinction between the left and the right hemisphere, which we must come on to at some point, is that the left hemisphere has very narrow beam attention that is highly clarified and precise. But it's only to like three three degrees of the 360 degree attentional arc, whereas the right hemisphere sees a very broad picture. And that is quite different. It's on the lookout. It's vigilant all the time. So if you think of the field of consciousness as being a stage on which life is going on, the bit that is within the spotlight is the bit the left hemisphere sees. And that's the bit we say, oh, I'm conscious of that. But when the spotlight moves, five minutes later, you're no longer conscious of what you were conscious of even a few seconds ago. But it's still within your consciousness. It's still possible for you to summon it, and it's still there. It's like the part of the stage that's not illuminated. It hasn't gone away. It's just the bit we're not any longer attending to in this very particular, highly self-conscious consciousness. What would you say about that? That's interesting. I think I would bound the the concept of consciousness a little differently there. Because so for me, I'm, again, I I think consciousness as as a concept is, is actually irreducible, which is to say we define it in circular terms. You know, it's synonymous with experience. That's agreed, yeah. You know, I, I like Thomas Nagel's framing that it's, it's something that is like to be a system. So if, if a bat is conscious, that's simply saying that there's something that it's like sure. to be a bat. If you could trade places with a bat, you'd have some qualitative character to your being in the world. It's, it wouldn't be synonymous with just having the lights go out. And no. so when, when talking about one's own conscious experience, I would differentiate consciousness from attention, say. So I can be paying attention to one thing, but also dimly aware of, of the course. things that I'm trying to exclude from my experience by focusing on the one thing. 
there's a kind of a center and, and periphery, you know, very much analogous to what we experience in vision. You know, you have your foveal, you know, in-focus vision, and then you have all the stuff you can see in the corner of your, your eye. Yes. And so there's, there's a spotlight of attention, but then there's this, there's this wider field of illuminated experience that has a qualitative character. And at the margins of this, it's always possible to have, as you say, new percepts and ideas and phenomena surface and be brought into direct awareness. And there, you know, as William James quite brilliantly pointed out, you know, now over 100 years ago, our experience of this, the kind of liminal boundary between consciousness and, and unconsciousness has a kind of structure that can be interrogated if you're clever. And, and we've, we've learned to do that scientifically in, in all kinds of ways. But even just introspectively, you can notice things that, one example that James gave is that if you think about what it's like to suffer the tip of the tongue phenomenon, you're trying to remember a word, you're trying to remember somebody's name, and you just can't get anything there. So on, on the one hand, yeah. we're talking about what is absent from consciousness, like the word is not there, the name is not there, there is a vacancy uh, which you're struggling to fill. But this vacancy has structure because someone can say to you, is the name Jim? And you instantly know, no, it's not Jim. You can exclude Jim because Jim is not the name you're trying to think of, mm. and yet you don't know what the name yeah. is that you're trying to think of. You know, there are fascinating aspects to this where take a phenomenon like hemi-neglect, which you know, we're, we're in our leisurely way getting to is, is, is one of these, these issues where you, know, where you have, a, yeah. in this case, a, a right hemisphere lesion, you know, usually in the parietal lobe, which causes this phenomenon of people neglecting the left half of the world and being unaware of their deficit, right? So if you tell them to draw a clock sure. face, they'll, they'll draw a, a circle, but then they'll put all the numbers on the, on the right side of the clock. If you ask them to start writing on a piece of paper, they'll start writing down the, the, just the right half of the piece of paper. But this raises yeah. a kind of Jamesian conundrum, which is in order to systematically neglect the left half of the world, you need to know where the middle is, right? And to know where the middle is, you do need to know where the left half of the world is. I mean, in order to reliably start writing on the right half of a piece of paper, part of you needs to have found the middle in order to jump over to the right side of things. So the, the question is, again, the, the very strange question from my point of view is not that some or most of this processing is happening subliminally, you know, in the dark, you know, beneath the light of consciousness. It's that some of it could be associated with consciousness, that there could be something that it's like to see the left half of the world and then get the rest of the person to ignore it. There's something that it's like to know the word that the rest of you is trying to think of and yet not provide it or not be able to provide it. And this just opens the door, and I'm not suggesting that in an intact brain we have two separate people in there, but insofar as the real estate of consciousness itself might not be fully integrated, it does force a, a very spooky picture, and again, a quasi-Freudian picture of a conscious part of you that you 
the so-called conscious subject isn't aware of in any given moment, right? That yep. There's some yep. there's something that it's like to be part of your mind that you, the conscious person in this moment, doesn't directly experience, and that's again, I, even if you're convinced that that is a a possibility, and even if you see the some indication of that in your life in moments of self-deception or in or in moments of you know dream you might experience a dream where there really seems like there's an author of the dream that has anticipated you as the protagonist of the dream not knowing what's going on I mean like having a dream where a dream character is telling you a joke that has a punchline that surprises you I mean like I mean, that's just an incredible experience they say you just you're the protagonist in your dream you meet a person who doesn't exist, and you're obviously not aware of that because you're, it's, it's a dream, you're, it's not a lucid dream, and this person tells you a joke, and you're waiting to hear the punchline, and then sure. when the punchline <laughs> is delivered, it's yeah. actually funny. And so how is it yeah. possible for part of your mind to have written on demand something that the other part of your mind will find funny? All of these moments, again, suggest something very weird, and I just, I think it's, it's just very hard for people to keep this in focus. You, you raised so many things. A few issues, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you can be patient, I'll, sure. I'll try and yeah. deal with them. I think the first, the first thing I think is I like very much the distinction you made between attention and consciousness. They're obviously completely distinct kinds of phenomena that we're talking about. And so what I want to distinguish between is things that are at the focus of my attention and consciousness. And so there are things that are not at the moment at the focus of my attention, which moves about in the field of consciousness. And what I'm trying to get across is that when we talk about I'm not conscious of that, or I wasn't conscious of it, what we mean is that at that moment, it wasn't present before our very limited scrutiny, that of the left hemisphere's three degrees of everything that's that's going on. But it doesn't mean that we're unconscious of the other things. My without my, as it were, knowing it now, I can be clocking information about hmm. the environment that I will use and that I can access, you know, I could access this in a dream or by in, in moments of creativity or just by changing what I'm thinking about and going down a different path, and all kinds of things will come out that are really latent. So, Again, I want to try to make this conversation as concrete for people as possible in terms of their own experience. So, for instance, like, you, know, you and I are speaking now. There are things that you are absolutely conscious of, that you, you must be conscious of in order to, in this case, parse the sentence I'm now speaking. And there are things that, are on the, that you're potentially conscious of and which you may be, it would be so easy for you yeah. to be conscious of them now that we must yeah. describe them as within the, the circle of your, your subjective experience yeah, yeah, now, yeah. except you're, you're not in fact conscious of them until they're pointed out. So if I were to say to you, are you conscious of mm. the way your feet feel on the floor? Well, now you are, yeah. right? But a moment ago, presumably, you were not at all focused on your feet. And so there's... Yeah, well, that's the word. You weren't focused on it. Right. But you were conscious of it. 
Well, so I'm not that's sure. Why I'm trying I'm, to make. Yeah, I mean that, that that's kind of a a more kind of a liminal question. I mean, and nothing really turns on this, but I do feel like you're well, you certainly have a, a well, model. No, of well, your... no, something really does depend on it, though. It's not just a sort of we can call it what we like, but what I'm right. saying is that there are realms of experience. They take place in the field of me. And yet I may not be thinking about them and therefore conscious in an incredibly superficial sort of sense of that word, of them. And most of me is doing that all the time. Right. As has been long known, we can do a lot of very sophisticated things. We can make judgments on issues that have many strands, actually better unconsciously than by consciously focusing on them, because we'll limit the number of strands we're taking into account. We can solve puzzles, we can make choices, we can find things beautiful, we can fall in love, we can solve an equation. All of these things are often done without us being aware of them. Mathematicians often describe their results as coming to them in a flash like that, not when they were working very hard on them. It's very hard to say that they weren't, that came out of something they weren't, they couldn't have been conscious of. Uh, maybe we don't need to push this any further, but what I'd like to focus on is that what you were describing when you talked about how can there be things there and yet there's something like it to be that and yet I'm not aware of it. Mm. This is like the whole business of creativity. All the time you're talking, I was thinking, but this is how creative thinking happens, that there is something brewing, as it were, which we have perhaps worked on consciously at some point in our lives and put in a lot of spade work on. But it wasn't at the time we were doing that work that the results came. The results came at another moment when we were idly getting on a bus or, you know, chopping the vegetables for dinner. So at that moment, we were not conscious, but we're highly conscious, as you say, once the thing comes. And it's very hard to say that that was that realm where it was is, is, is somehow discontinuous from the realm of consciousness. I would just say the spotlight was in a different place. That seems to me to sum up very helpfully what we're talking about. There can be a spotlight of attention within the field of consciousness. Now, I think actually this is an interesting distinction here and something may turn on it because I, I think I would parse the mind differently there. So for instance, the example I gave you of the feeling of your feet on the floor you know, that was picked very deliberately to point out that there's something you're not, you may not have been aware of a moment ago, but which you can easily be aware of now. In fact, once I point it out to you, you can't help but be aware of it, right? Like if I tell you, notice the way your shoulders feel right now, whether you like it or not, you're going to begin to notice the way your, your shoulders feel. And yet a moment ago, you weren't, really, yeah. right? So that boundary is one boundary. Then there's this other boundary between what you can potentially be conscious of and really what you, despite your best efforts, could never be conscious of. And yet this area of information processing, to use a metaphor you, you might not favor, but what's going on in the dark outside of your consciousness is continually producing things which you can subsequently become conscious of, but you can't become conscious of the processes that produce those things. So, for instance, your understanding. Oh, but that's something. Yeah, like I mean, this, I'm talking about the like the, you know the cognitive unconscious. I mean, your ability to 
to parse language, right? It's not something you can become conscious of, and yet no. you're, in every moment you're conscious of its products. And much of, I, I would say, much of creativity falls into that category. Or you, know, you, you're, you're, you solve the mathematical equation when you're no longer focused on it, or you get the brilliant idea that you've been sort of ruminating around, but it comes to you when you're you know, making lunch. But would you want to deny the status of consciousness to the realm in which that happened? Yeah, so, so this is, comes back to my first point about what is so potentially strange here, that is either there is, and both things can be true, either there's part of the mind that is busily doing some of the most important things we do as humans, you know, think creatively, understand language, form, you know, you know, goals and, and plans about the future. Sure, sure. You know, all of these things, either much of that is happening truly in the dark, you know, there's nothing that it's like to be associated with that function until some product of that processing gets pushed into consciousness, it gets promoted into this zone where, in fact, the lights are on, or there's something that it's like to do many or all of those things, but I, the conscious witness of my, yeah. of my life in this moment, do not share that point of view, right? That's the very weird part. Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think we might get sidetracked so far that we never get to interesting right. things like the differences right. between the hemispheres or right, right. hemi-neglect, actually, which is very, very relevant. Yeah. But all I would say is that it's very hard to argue that when Fuchs solved his equations, that part of his mind was not conscious. He couldn't be conscious of what that part of his mind was doing at that moment. It would have stopped it happening. But when I experience certain things powerfully, pain, and then I'm distracted, and I don't feel the pain for a minute, okay, I'm not conscious in this very tiny circumscribed sense of the word, but I'm trying to just suggest that Pain can only be in consciousness. It can't, it's a phenomenon that can only exist in consciousness. And it's not coherent to say that consciousness popped out and the pain disappeared and then it popped back again. The pain is there. I wasn't attending to it. And this is true of all the complex things I feel, the beauty of the landscape around me. I'm aware of it. I may even be taking in things that, you know, will come up in dreams. Or if somebody asked me, I'd say, well, yes, actually, I think that did happen. And I'd be right better than chance, even though I hadn't been aware at the time of knowing it. So I think the business about conscious, unconscious, I'd just like to go back to attention. Let me uh, deny you that, oh, that freedom, okay. just because I do think this is interesting and consequential. And I, I promise you, I will, we will leap back to uh, okay, okay. hemispheric specialization in a moment. But okay, okay. This, <laughs> so to take an example like riding a bicycle. Right. So in the beginning, before you know how to ride a bicycle and you're being taught and you're struggling to do it, yes. basically everything is conscious. It's all too conscious. You're being told explicitly what to do. Yes. You're trying to do it. You're failing to do it. And now all of a sudden you're doing it. You notice the difference between doing it well and doing it badly. But at a certain point, this competence, you know, this kind of procedural memory gets ingrained in parts of the brain that seem not to be associated with consciousness, which is to say that you're not, once you really know how to do something, you don't have to consciously attend to any part of the doing of it. In fact, 
doing that would degrade your performance. And when you when you truly become oh, an absolutely ex- yeah, when you truly become an expert, even you know less of your brain, different parts of your brain, generally more posterior parts of the yeah. brain, take up this behavior, and it's very efficiently governed and it seems not to be associated yeah. with consciousness and you can just imagine in yourself now let's just say each of us had a stroke at some point during this conversation which yeah. may not be so surprising to our audience inconvenient yeah, but <laughs> but it removed it removed only the parts of our brain that knows how to ride a bicycle i'm not so sure this is actually a coherent picture of what might be true of that neural real estate, but let's just say well, we have... Well, that pass, yeah. Yeah, our bicycle circuits have been disrupted. But for the purposes of this conversation, <laughs> there'd be no way to know that, right? Like, because neither of us is attempting to ride a bicycle now. And I, I would say that mm. it's quite possible, again, I'm, this is a, a bit of a cartoon picture of the neurology here, mm. but it's quite possible that there'd be no way for us to know whether we can still ride a bicycle unless we actually attempt to ride a bicycle, right? Like, I can't introspect in myself and feel my bicycle riding circuits to be degraded unless I actually grab a bike in hand and step over yeah, the yeah. saddle sure. and try to balance. And Yeah, yeah. But I would extrapolate from that to everything else you, <laughs> you're putting in consciousness, like creativity, okay. et cetera. All right. Well... What you've described is the problem of expertise. When you're a bad chess player or a learning surgeon, you have to do it by the book and keep stopping and thinking. But when you're really good, you work while chatting, humming, listening to something else, and you're doing the job really, really beautifully. And as you quite rightly say, being conscious of it in that way would deteriorate your performance. But I think when you talk about the bicycle thing, you see, I think... I mean, of course, as you probably know, that's largely dealt with by the cerebellum. But we're now discovering that the cerebellum, although it can't (laughs) on its own sustain consciousness, this is a fascinating thing, is involved intimately with cognition Mm. and emotion as well as bodily movements. It used to be thought that it was just for sort of motor coordination, broadly speaking. But it's deeply involved with lots of other aspects of our functioning. So what I feel you're doing, if I may say so, is separating off too harshly, making too clear a distinction between like motor uh, out of consciousness and cognitive right in consciousness, because lots of cognitive things are and aren't. Lots of motor things are and aren't. And indeed, cognitive, emotional and motor are somewhat artificial distinctions since they're all, Yeah, I can give you examples in which they're all, all interpenetrating one another. Which is why too hard or fast a distinction here troubles me. And I think that what I like is Lichtenberg's formulation. I don't think he's the only one who said, es denkt, it thinks in me. (laughs) And so there is something in there that is in the field of me that is thinking. But it's a brave person who says that that something has no consciousness. It's just that it's a very inconvenient thing to stop and stop and use your consciousness. Whitehead, the, the philosopher A.N. Whitehead, who I'm a great admirer of, mm. said operations of thought are like cavalry charges in a battle. They're strictly limited in number. They require fresh horses and must only be made at decisive moments. I think that's a brilliant summary. Most of our thinking goes on somewhere else, but it's not unconscious. 
in that sense of being not accessible to or ever having been in consciousness? Well, first of all, let me say I, I, I'm not dividing the categories of cognition and emotion and behavioral no, okay, action yeah. in, in, in quite those ways. I, I totally agree. I didn't, that, think, I didn't think you would. Yeah. But the, um, no, I didn't think you would, Sam, no. <laughs> and I, I, I agree with you that there is the boundary here is, is totally fluid because so much is potentially accessible that may not be ac accessed now, in any given now. Precisely. But the question for me remains whether what is currently not illuminated by experience, you could take a full inventory of your experience in this moment or in this hour and let's say capture everything, every aspect of what it's like to be you from the subjective, qualitative, first-person side, everything that's left out of that picture that just has not been in the frame in this hour, we still know is doing a tremendous amount of work. In fact, most of the work, you know, 99.4% of the work on somebody's account of yes. producing your human mind. Four, four. Yeah, four, right. Yep. So. <laughs> and and the question is, is some or all of that also associated with this feeling of being, this subjective first-person feeling of being, but you, yep. the you who can take stock of your experience right now, aren't aware of it? I mean, so again, it's, the question comes back to the split brain. Is it true in any sense ever that we're in the position of let's say, the left hemisphere, simply not knowing that the right hemisphere even exists as a perspective, right? And that's the thing that I think is, is so quasi-Freudian okay. and bizarre. The strange part is not that many things of import happen outside of consciousness. I think most of, of educated humanity has absorbed the fact that much of what the brain is doing is happening in the dark. And it's nevertheless important. Of course. But the truly strange part, the uncanny part, is that maybe part of that darkness isn't, in fact, dark and is illuminated and is having an experience. And again, this could not be a stable thing. This could be shifting and, and you know, joining with, with what okay. it's like to be you and then breaking off again. There could be a fluidity to it. But is there a light on in the mansion of your mind in a room? that you don't have access to right now? You, the one, I'm, the one who can hear my words. Well, uh, by using the illuminated metaphor, you're cutting right across the distinction I want to make about the attentional spotlight being identified with what we're conscious of. And perhaps I could now move towards, because it's entirely connected with yeah. this, some fascinating things about hemisphere difference. So... We really need to come back and unpack why the two hemispheres attend in different ways, but yeah. they do. And when I first discovered this, I was not really switched on to how colossal this finding is. But the left hemisphere effectively has a very narrow attentional spotlight to details that are fragmented. It moves from one bit to another and so on. Whereas the right hemisphere has the whole field of awareness sustained. Now, when you were talking, about the doing an inventory, you may have had something different in mind, like a sort of ideal being that doesn't exist, that could know everything. But in terms of if you try to log the things that I am conscious of, it would be what the left hemisphere can report, basically. 
but there's much going on that my my behavior will illuminate and that I will be experiencing, which is coming from the part that is not immediately in the focus, but is sustained by the right hemisphere. And it's almost all of things, you know. But in, when, in the case of, uh, of a normal... No, hang, hang on, hang on. No, 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 sorry, hang on. I must be able to finish this otherwise. We'll never, ever get there. Okay, so Sam, listen, something I've, very, I've been put here to frustrate you. Happens. No, 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 it's okay. I mean, if we had... Let's do a day sometime. But li- yes. listen, because we've got to deal with the here and now. The thing is this. When you... Ha- this is really gripping stuff to me if you want some weird stuff. When people have a right hemisphere stroke, the left hemisphere is only aware of the bit of the world that it uses, because that's basically its task is to utilize the world manipulated. And that means the bit that it uses with the right hand, where it can act, intervene, and bring its will to bear on reality. And so a rather small part over on the right is, and you described this already very beautifully, that's what you see. When the left hemisphere is damaged, this doesn't generally happen. The right hemisphere Mm. gives you the whole picture. Now, when you ask people about areas of the world on the left, they must know about them in some way, but their responses indicate that they're not aware of it at all. So that when you ask people about the half of their body that they're neglecting, I mean, there's some level they must know that it's there but they will change the conversation or, if pressed, deny that that half of their body exists or that it belongs to the examiner or it belongs to the patient in the next bed. And some, a philosopher and a psychologist in Italy did some marvellous work with, and it actually it's been repeated, but asking people with neglect to describe half of the world. And in this case, it was in Milan. Mm. And the subjects were asked to stand in the cathedral square, Piazza del Duomo in Milan, which they knew very well, Mm. and look at the facade of the cathedral and describe the buildings that were in the square, give a complete inventory. And they would talk about all the ones that existed down the right side. This is in their imagination, remember. This is not anything to do with vision. They would give all the names, and they would miss the ones on the left completely. And then if they were asked, well, can you go to the other end of the square and turn around with your back to the front of the cathedral and describe what's there? They would describe all the ones that they'd just not described and not described any of the ones that they had just described. Now, the question can reasonably be asked, and the the philosopher in this case, whose name I can't remember, said, it seems that there's a sort of ontological landslide that half the world just goes like that and the other half comes. Now, what I want to draw your attention to here, is that while the right hemisphere knows that things that it doesn't know exist, the things that it's not aware of may still be there, and Mm. there's lots of evidence about that, the left hemisphere actually, for it to exist, is to be in that field of attention that the left hemisphere has. If it isn't, it just doesn't exist. And it's not like we're just not a... Somebody said, with um, a hemi-field deficit, it seems very unfair to call it inattention because you can only inattend or unattend if something is actually there, but it isn't there. So for this person with the left hemisphere, being there means I'm attending to it. The right hemisphere doesn't take that view at all. So when we, I just thought I'd throw that in because when you come back 
to questions about awareness, I think it's, you know, it casts a little bit of light. Yeah, well, I, I want to add a few um, strange stories to that picture because, oh, it, again, it's, it's just so strange. And this, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but this comes from the, the work of the neurologist V.S. Ramachandran, who spent a lot of time studying mm. people with hemineglect and, and who have a condition known as anosognosia, which is a denial of their, mm. of their deficits, right? So you have a, again, you have someone here with a, a right hemisphere stroke. Strangely, this happens more in women than in men, can develop this condition where they're unaware of their, their deficit. And their deficit in this case can be, you know, full paralysis of the left side of their body. And so, exactly, Ramachandran, you know, who's now the, their neurologist, will come into the room and ask them to submit to a neurological exam, and he'll say things like, "Okay, now take your your right hand, governed by the the intact left hemisphere, and just mm. you know point to my nose." And you know they'll you know raise their right hand mm. and point to his nose, and then then he'll say, "Okay, now take your left hand and point to my nose," and their left hand can't do anything because they've suffered a right hemisphere stroke. And uh, Ramachandran will say, well, are you pointing to it now? And they'll say yes. And so there's this kind of, you know, one must imagine a kind of hallucination that they, yes. they, they think yep. they're pointing with their, their left hand, which is hanging at their side. But this is so strange That's right. that, that if you get other anosognosics in the room to witness this, this non-performance, they will cover yep. for the original subject and say, Yes, she's pointing to your nose right now. <laughs> so there's that, right? And then, and then, yeah. then if I you know. then if you shoot cold water into the ear of this subject, That's right? And you know, which produces a you know a brainstem reflex that produces nystagmus, the, the kind of involuntary movement of the eyes, yeah, yeah. for a period of about a minute or so, this person will be totally aware of their deficits. And one of, you know, one of the first things apparently they will That's say right. is, what's wrong with my left arm? I can't move it, right? And then this self-awareness no. degrades over the course of a minute. They're restored to being entirely unaware of their actual condition. And so this is, again, this is a picture of the mind that is, is deeply disconcerting. Yes. No, well, it overlaps with the, something I was saying earlier, that these conditions can be brought into existence like that or will disappear like that right with intervention so the idea that you know well this only happens when you've got a split brain subject is is not the case by putting ice water into the left external auditory meatus you stimulate the whole activity of the right hemisphere and the effect can last for longer than a minute it can last for up to an hour or two mm. and the delusions as it were will disappear for that time, and then it will, they'll go back to denying that a paralyzed arm even belongs to them. I mean, in one brilliant case, the examiner taps the hand that the person is un, unwilling to acknowledge and says, whose hand is this? And they say, it's yours, doctor. You know, I mean, it's, it's that. And yet, in other respects, this person is not what we would normally call mad. I mean, they're otherwise the full ticket. So it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon, as you quite rightly say. There's also, there's one other relevant detail here, which in a very simple but, but clever experiment, Ramachandran got at this question of whether or not the person is shamming on any level, whether they actually know what is true and is, and 
Oh, yes, yes, that's and this, right. When when they're asked to pick up a tray of drinks, and you have a tray laden with drinks on a table, and you walk over to pick it up, Ramachandran uh, hypothesized that if on any level this person knows that only one hand will be answering the command, they will you know slide that hand to the middle of the tray and balance it, whereas if they actually think both hands yes. are working... They'll reach for one side of the tray and just upend it and spill the drinks all over the floor. And that's, in fact, what they do. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's another experiment he did, which I thought was the one you were going to refer to, which is absolutely stunning, which is that he realized that if you can offer the person an exploration that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them, then they will accept that they've got a paralysis. So, for example, with somebody who'd got a left arm paralysis, he said to them, I'm going to give you an injection into your arm that will cause your arm to be paralyzed. Mm. And afterwards, he said, can mm. you move that arm? And they go, no, no, I can't, no. And, it, you know, and they were, so having been, as it were, their face has been preserved. Right. They were able to acknowledge it. And this is something that's very interesting about the differences between the standpoints of the two hemispheres. The left hemisphere, as I say, is, is a bullshitter, and it's full of self-belief, and it is unwilling to accept a deficit in it or in the person, whereas mm. the right hemisphere of the person is able to accept that. So you can give, and this has been done under a procedure called the Weder or Vada test, where you, where you isolate one hemisphere at a time, you, you asked um, a group of psychologists, asked people to do a personality inventory, first when the left hemisphere was conscious, and then when the right hemisphere was conscious. And they, they, they gave the same thing to the person's friends and relatives. And when they came to compare the answers, they found that the left hemisphere had a very high opinion of itself, mm -hmm. <laughs> whereas the right hemisphere was much more realistic and slightly on the pessimistic side. So when we are in a world in which we simply can't, as you mentioned, I don't want to reduce things to the ghastly state of politics at the moment, but when you said, you know, uh, this question of uh, denial and, you know, we're always right, that is another aspect of left hemisphere lock. I'm acutely aware of uh, having been a, a terrible host and led you lurching back and forth across this topic <laughs> without actually landing right squarely on it. So let's be a little more systematic at least for this chapter of the conversation, and I want to ask you the, the, the following questions in this order. You know, why is the brain divided, and why do we think it's functionally asymmetrical? And then, then let's simply produce, uh, insofar as we're able, a catalog of, of the differences between the right and left hemispheres of the human brain. I mean, who would you be in the world if you had two left hemispheres or two right hemispheres? How different are those people? So let's, let's just proceed in, in yes. that way. Yes. Why do we think okay. we're divided in the first place? Well, I think we're divided because uh, nobody really has made much of a, a suggestion about this or some early hints, but it seems to me quite clear because of the work done with animals who also tend to use their left hemisphere for one task and their right hemisphere for another. And in most birds and animals that have the eyes on the side of the head, you can tell this by just looking at which eye they're using. 
Um, as you rightly pointed out, in humans, it's different because our eyes are on the front of our face. And so it's the right visual field of both eyes that mm. goes to the left hemisphere and vice versa. But when you do this, you see that they use the left hemisphere's field of vision to target things that they need. It's for grabbing. It's for getting prey, picking up a seed, if it's a bird, trying to pick it up on a background of gravel before another bird does, picking up a twig to make a nest, all these things it uses the left hemisphere for. But as for all the rest, for keeping a lookout for what else is going on in the world around them, are there enemies nearby? Is that my mate who I need to welcome into this situation? All of that is taken care of by the right hemisphere. And there's even a very interesting experiment being done with lizards where one eye was patched at a time and a picture of a predator that the lizard would normally be frightened of was a simulated predator was produced. And of course, when the newt or whatever it was, was able to look with the, with the lizard, was able to look with its right hemisphere, left eye, it did just that because that's the eye that it would normally use. Mm. But if the left eye was taped over, it would still try to use, it would turn its head that way, even though it knew there was a predator there, because that link between the predator and the right hemisphere and the prey in the left hemisphere was so strong. Now, I see this as a perfectly good Darwinian evolutionary phenomenon we can't pay attention to the world in two diametrically opposed ways at the same time. Which is why when we see something that can be seen in two different ways, like mm. one of those optical illusions, we can't see them both at once. We can only see one or the other. And that's a matter of attention. So what it seems is that in order to be able to survive, you have to be able to look for prey and look out for predators. That's looking very, very simply. Mm. But the right hemisphere all takes, takes on the whole social aspect of life for chicks as well as for human beings. So a chick will use its left eye, right hemisphere, to bond with another chick or to take in the mother or the mother will use to look at the chick and so forth. So the, these, this bonding between right hemisphere and right hemisphere is very important for all animals we've looked at right up to and including human beings, where that bond between the infant and the mother, and it is usually the mother for all sorts of good reasons, is in the right ventromedial frontal cortex of the infant responding to the right ventromedial frontal cortex of the mother. So these are two kinds of ways of looking at the world very roughly. But by the time you get to human beings, they're more differentiated. And one needs to talk about the asymmetry aspect which you raised. Why are they asymmetrical? Well, when I was in medical school, it was pointed out that the left hemisphere was broader in the region of what is roughly the language area of the left hemisphere, and that this was clearly the, the reason why it was larger, because it had to deal with language, and language is a very complex thing. That made perfect sense, except that there is also an even bigger asymmetry in the brain, which is the asymmetry of the right frontal cortex over the left. And that was never mentioned. 
So there's a puzzle for a start. And here's another one. The great apes that don't have speech, so gorillas and chimpanzees, bonobos and so on, they have the same enlargement in the left posterior part of the brain, even though they can't speak. I mean, the most they can do is acquire a language of perhaps 300 uh, symbols and a certain number of syllables, but that, you know, you've got a a vocabulary of 100,000 or whatever words. So, and that, you know, got me thinking. And the other thing is the separation between the hemispheres, that even when we start physically having a big connection between the hemispheres, it evolves to be more about inhibition than about facilitation. Mm. And I think this is because these two modes of attention can interfere with one another. They need to be both online, if you like, but we need to have them separately. And very quickly, the reason I think that the right frontal cortex is expanded is because it underwrites the whole social emotional life of the human being. It's the thing that is sensitive to meaning, to context, to all that is implicit, to everything that is to do with metaphor and imagery and all the aspects of language, actually, which are not just the things that a computer would find by looking things up in the dictionary, and all the aspects of reading faces and interpreting the meaning of them and and so on, goes on in the right hemisphere, broadly, Mm. particularly in the frontal part. And the reason I think that the left hemisphere has this expansion is because it is devoted to a symbolic version of the world, a map of the world, which, like all maps, is very much simpler than the real world. But its value comes from its being simple. The map doesn't get better by containing more and more and more information. And we do know that the great apes have this capacity to use concepts and to map the world, even though they haven't yet turned it into language. Mm. So then we come to humans. And in humans, various things happen. Obviously, they develop much more social, as I've just described, ways of being for which reason the right frontal expansion is the latest expansion, the latest huge change in the human cerebrum. And the other thing is that language requires the ability to sort of have a world offline somewhere in which you can do hypothetical manipulation of symbols and then bring it back into the realm of of reality. And what this results in from this dual nature of attention is a number of dipoles, if you like, that have to be mentioned in slightly crude terms, but you must understand that none of these is absolute. They're all matters of degree. In one, the left hemisphere, the picture that is seen is fragmentary. In the right hemisphere, it is the large whole integrated picture, more so at any rate. In the left hemisphere, what is seen is more certain because it's focused very clearly and it's ruled out everything else that might be complicating in this picture. And the whole goal of the left hemisphere is to act quickly and dirtily, go and grab that rabbit, pick up that seed, outdo your competitor. And so it tends to be quite simple, but it is clear and it doesn't like what mostly reality is, which is complex, multivalent, ambiguous. The right hemisphere is much better at understanding all of that. The left hemisphere understands the explicit, the right hemisphere alone, the implicit, so it gets the meanings of jokes 
of humor generally, of all the things that are communicated in body language and by what we don't say, and in poetry and things like that, much better than the Latin, which tends to take things terribly literally. Um, you get, you know, like a, a, this, an example of a patient who'd had a, a right hemispherectomy for, you know, obviously reasons of being a tumor in it. So he really only basically was functioning on the left hemisphere. And uh, six weeks after the operation, his surgeon asked him, how are you feeling? And he said, with my hands. Hmm. It's that kind of thing. That, <laughs> you know, you, you just kind of like, oh, right. right. So, so, you know, ironically, it becomes a joke in the part of the brain that can no longer appreciate humor. Very, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, there's an, another irony here that occurred to me, which is when you think of the implications for the the expression of emotion and the detection of emotion with the with the face, yeah. right? You have this interesting consequence. I mean, I don't know. It may, in fact, be optimal, but it is nevertheless strange that in a, in a face-to-face encounter, you know, if you and I are, are looking each other, you know, squarely yes. in the eye, yes. the more expressive part of my face will be the my left side you know falling in your right visual field born of its you know the the dominance right. of the right hemisphere and so therefore you will be the part of your brain that is best able to detect the facial display of emotion mm. will be seeing the part of my face that is least able to express that emotion again we you know we're That's not right. we're not split but we're imperfectly connected so there's there has to be some consequence to this. That's absolutely right. And, and if I may be allowed a, a, a brief digression there, but I don't want to lose the thread no. of where we were going, the difference no, it's just, between them. Is, it's just... But just on this topic, something very uh, important here, that babies are in almost all cultures that we know of, I think all cultures we know of, preferentially cradled to the left. Mm. And that means that the baby's face is in the mother's right hemisphere's visual field over on the left and is also seeing the more expressive left hemiface of the mother. Not only is the left hemiface more expressive, but it's actually larger in humans than the right because it is doing more important work. And there is an interesting sidelight on this, which I deal with in the second part of my book, The Master and His Emissary, in which I look at the history of ideas and the changes between hemisphere balance over time, which we'd have to leave for another time. But, but one of the things that happens there, and is very interesting to me, is that in times when civilizations have flourished, there has been a tendency for, it's not a, an absolute one, but the tendency, a very a statistically significant one, for people to be depicted with the expressive part of their face prominent and in the part of the picture, which is going to be more accessible to the right hemisphere of the onlooker. And then when civilizations have declined, they become much more symmetrical and uh, staring straight ahead and much less expressionful. Mm. Anyway, to get back to, uh, I think I just coined a word there, sorry, expressive will do. Anyway, um, yes, to go back to where we were, one thing that, again, struck me as very remarkable is how the left hemisphere sees only categories and the right hemisphere sees the individual case. So they both categorize up to a point. But the left hemisphere uses much broader, cruder categories. So it can distinguish between a lorry and a car or something. But the right hemisphere can see the difference between 
a Citroen 2CV and a, and, a, and a Renault 4 or something like that. But it also is the one that understands the unique case. After all, faces, which the right hemisphere is almost entirely the specialist in reading, and right hemisphere strokes make people unaware of who they're talking to, which is the story behind the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Mm -hmm. He could only understand her in left hemisphere fashion by a single feature. Oh, it's wearing a hat. <laughs> um, it, not the individual face. But there are cases of people who've had a right hemisphere stroke. One was of a farmer who, before his right hemisphere stroke, knew all his cows by name and afterwards could barely tell the difference between a horse and a cow. And another one that is particularly touching is of a, a Swiss woman who'd made it her life's work to know all the birds of Switzerland. And after a right parietal stroke, she just said, all the birds look the same, which is, you know, this is the same person, actually, mm. but this is the world they're now inhabiting. And that's not a tiny thing. I mean, the world that we live in, one of the things that's being driven out very much is the nuance of uniqueness, of individuality. Everyone represents a category you know, which is at war with some other category. This is a fairly awful way to be thinking about human life. Anyway, carrying on from there, the left hemisphere sees things more abstracted. Part of what you do when you put things in categories is take them out of the situation in which they find themselves. And to me, one of the greatest things in philosophy is the importance of context. In fact, John Dewey said that the neglect of context was the most prevalent and most important mistake made in philosophy because everything changes because of the context. And when you extract something from a context in order to find better what it is and analyze it, what you've done is just destroy the context which made it what it was. This is lined up also with the fact that the left hemisphere is less in touch with the body. It tends to disembody experience. The right hemisphere is in better touch with the body in a number of respects. There are actually literally somewhat more profuse connections between the, the frontal lobes and the cingulate cortex where cognition and emotion tend to gel on the right side than on the left. Mm. Um, it has more input to the uh, HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal mm -hmm. axis, which governs all that we call the autonomic nervous system. And the right hemisphere has the body image which is what is obviously clearly very badly disturbed in anorexia. So mm. in all those respects, it is less embodied. It tends more to quantification than to qualification, which de demands seeing the different qualities that make individual cases, whereas quantification is easier when you're lumping things together. And there are a number of others, but perhaps one of the most important ones to mention probably the very most basic one, is the difference between something as it presences and its representation, which literally means something that is no longer present, the mind trying to make it present after it's actually gone. It is represented, but it's not any longer presencing. And I use presencing rather than simply the word present. It's a translation of a Heideggerianism. But the point mm. is that being present sounds passive, whereas what I'm suggesting is that there is an active operation of some element of our experience on us and us on it, that it is a two-way exchange that depends on a relationship. It's not just passive registering of information. Mm. Anyway, perhaps that's enough on that for the moment. Yeah, well, I, again, it, I, I do feel like it, these are facts that are 
hard to absorb and, and, and make real for oneself in one's experience. And I want to just try to anchor them to experience insofar as that's possible. So, I mean, yeah, one of the things you yeah. point out, you pointed out here, I'm not sure you used both terms, but in your book, you point out that the left hemisphere tends to be the seat of abstraction, but also reification. And that's, you know, based on, on the terms alone, that can seem somewhat paradoxical because it, you know, abstraction and reification Indeed. seem to be very different operations, but there's something importantly similar about yes. them. Maybe you can talk about that for a second. What do you mean by abstraction and reification with respect to the, the left's form of cognition? Well, in brief, I take our experience of the world, which is all we can know, to be the coming together of whatever it is we mean by the mental, the experiential, the spiritual, and the material. And that we are amphibious beings, if you like. And that ability to hold together a complex whole, which includes the idea that things that look superficially opposed may in fact be aligned, is much better understood by this broader, more perceptive overview of the right hemisphere and its unwillingness to pin things down into categories. Whereas the left hemisphere will either focus on the abstract element or on the thinginess and lose the other part of this mm. dyad. So one way of thinking of this is that there is a kind of mechanistic speech which is also enormously abstract. It tends, in fact, towards more and more abstract terms in describing things that we would normally think of as part of felt embodied experience. And yet the thinking is the image, the metaphor, the, the line of reasoning that is being espoused is as if deanimated, it is as if mechanized. And people who have damage to the right hemisphere both simultaneously talk in rather abstract terms, and schizophrenics do this too. There's a kind of thought disorder in schizophrenia, which is called pseudo-philosophical thought disorder, because mm. to begin with, you think, are they saying something terribly profound I'm just not getting? And then you start looking at it, it doesn't make any sense at all. But it's desperately abstract when a normal, normally functioning human being would be dealing with something more concrete that you and I can understand from our own experience. But at the same time, they can experience themselves and other people famously as deanimated, as zombies, hmm. and doubt whether there is actually any experience there. For example, a woman who had a right parietal stroke said, I feel just like a piece of furniture. Things that used to enrapture me, the beauty of that vase of flowers or whatever, it says nothing to me. It might as well be, be thorns. It all seems to be dead. So this is a, I mean, this is actually a, a, a very important distinction between the animate and the inanimate world, and they have overlaps, I believe, but that would again take mm. us a very long time to unpack. But. Yeah, well, there, there are um, interesting neurological conditions. I assume quite rare. I mean, I, I'm not a neurologist; I've got no clinical experience. But you know, one hears about uh, things like Capgras syndrome, you know, wherein yes. you know a person begins to feel that. The people in their life, you know, even the most intimate people in their lives, though they look exactly the same, have been replaced by aliens or some, you know, counterfeits. And it is does suggest yes. a, 
part of this right hemisphere function going haywire where you, the, the feeling of familiarity and connection to the yes. reality of, of the specific individual person has gone. In both Capgras syndrome and its inverse, Fregoli syndrome, in which somebody who is not known to you seems to you to be somebody who is familiar to mm-hmm. you. Um, there's something going on, which is the breakdown of the unique. Both of them exemplify this loss of the sense of uniqueness. Also a sense of stasis. So the idea that the thing can still maintain its identity and change, a hugely important philosophical point, which distinguishes the right and left hemisphere, which I've written around a lot recently, that the right hemisphere sees if something has changed, it can still be part of an evolving, flowing circumstance. But because the left hemisphere tends to take time slices, if something is different, it's a static thing being replaced by another static thing. And so I understand if I leave my wife in the morning and she's got long hair and she's happy, and I come back in the evening and she's got short hair and she's looking blue. I don't think she's been impersonated by somebody else. I think she's had a bad haircut, you know. Mm. <laughs> but these syndromes that you've just described, the um, misidentification syndromes, and there are other really fascinating ones that go along with it, are almost all, when they are organic, i.e. after a brain injury, are after right hemisphere, not after left hemisphere deficits. Mm. So what do we know about the difference? Which really just brings to my... Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, which brings me to my point that, you know, if you look at a lot of these syndromes, and in my new book, I do actually go through all the known psychiatric syndromes and uh, of a neurological kind and their correlates in the brain. What you find is that the vast majority of those that seriously disturb our sense of ourselves, of the world, and of the living experience of being follow right hemisphere damage, but don't follow left hemisphere damage. Anyway, I just thought I'd say that because it's kind of important for what we've been talking about earlier. Although from what I know of the stroke literature, there's a slightly less happy partitioning to describe here, which is, so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that left hemisphere strokes are more often associated with depression and, you know, be more, you know, stark unhappiness, you know, in response to the deficits, whereas right hemisphere strokes, so, so now you know, have a intact left hemisphere, are associated with a, a more sometimes blissful unawareness that there's anything wrong. Um, and I, I guess it's, there's a possible confound here. I, I, you know, it's possible that having a left hemisphere stroke is, um, you know, very frustrating based on the fact that we're so, language is so necessary for our functioning that when you have that deficit, you know, you're, you're now depressed as a result of having yes. lost that capacity, whereas there's not the same kind of clearly bounded and consequential damage uh, happening in, in the right hemisphere. But as to how do you view the difference in emotional tone and mood yeah. across the hemispheres? Yeah. Well, that's a fascinating thing that you've brought up there. Yes, in terms of emotional timbre, the right hemisphere is more inclined, as I said earlier, it's more inclined to take a slightly too pessimistic view of the self, whereas the left hemisphere is inclined to take a vastly unrealistically positive view of the self. But nonetheless, the right hemisphere is closer to the truth. Mm -hmm. And there is evidence that 
when people are depressed, they're actually more realistic yeah. in a number of ways, including something as measurable as the passage of time than normals. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's also true that whereas you can become manic when the left hemisphere is in overdrive and the right hemisphere is not properly balancing up, um, you can indeed become depressed. And that is the major psychiatric disorder that's really associated with an imbalance in which the right hemisphere is, is too high on the scales, as it were, compared with the left, either through the left hemisphere being deficient or the right hemisphere being somehow in overdrive. But there are a number of important things. One is the relationship with reality I've just mentioned, but also that when it becomes utterly unrealistic, which it can do, you get syndromes like Kotar's syndrome, in which people actually believe that they're dead and that their body is rotting and they demand to be buried, or they believe they get delusional guilt. I had a patient who was a solicitor, actually, that's to say an attorney, I think, in America, at any rate, a lawyer. So an intelligent woman who, in her depressed state, believed that she had caused the war in Bosnia, hmm. which had never been near Bosnia. Hmm. Uh, so you get these situations, but when they become frankly psychotic like that, and it follows damage to either hemisphere that you can actually see, it is very much more common after damage to the right hemisphere than mm. to the left. So that business in my new book has cost me some time to explain. I've done my best to do it quickly now, but I was hoping you wouldn't bring it up because it's slightly, mm. it's slightly unclear unless you can sort of go into it in a bit more detail. But yes, virtually all the syndromes that are significant in terms of, you know, being out of touch with what we would normally call core reality, follow damage to the right hemisphere. There's just one syndrome that occurs more commonly with the left hemisphere, and it's autotopagnosia, which is being able to place a part of the body in the body and name it. And it's thought that it may be to do with the difficulty in using names, mm. which obviously does follow on if you've had a left hemisphere stroke. And it may also be due to the very interesting difference between the left hemisphere's grasp of the body and the right hemisphere's grasp. So whereas the right hemisphere sees the body as a whole, the left hemisphere registers the body as pieces. So there is a knee and an elbow and a nose and an ear and a foot. And as it were, it has difficulty seeing the relationship between them. Indeed, people who've had right parietal strokes, if asked to draw an elephant, will draw a tail, and then they'll draw a trunk, and then they'll draw an ear, but nothing like an elephant, if you see what I mean. Mm. So again, a feature has been singled out, but no sense of the, the gestalt, the overall figure and form. Well, one thing you argue for in your book, and it, you actually mentioned it in passing a few minutes ago, which I would like to explore a little bit if, again, you know, time permits. Now I'm aware that the right hemisphere being aware that uh, I've taken at least two hours of your time. <laughs> but um, if you can spare a little more, I, I would like to talk about the, the civilizational consequences of all this and okay, of what yes, you perceive yes. to be an imbalance in the, the styles of cognition and uh, engaging the world that are the characteristic of the hemispheres and that we, we have somehow been tipped into a place where the left hemisphere has become ascendant. And mm. the, the general picture here is that you know, even in 
the normal intact, you know, quote, normal intact brain, we have two hemispheres that have very different ways of being in the world and very, very different ways of attending to the world and probably different value systems in the end. And that these are, you know, vying Indeed. for inclusion in our, you know, acting in the world. However, imperfectly, it's easy to see that that one style or the other can become more and more leveraged by culture. I mean, culture has become a kind of operating system for the human mind. So much of what we mm -hmm. feel and do by default is a matter of conforming to the norms of culture, the expectations of culture, that you just, you know, so much about us that is human is not merely in our brains. It's inscribed in our world, and we're interacting with it all the time. I mean, basically everything you can see, unless you happen to be listening to this conversation while walking in the woods, everything you can see in your environment is first an idea. It's a human invention, and it's been put there and, and has changed how you pay attention to the world, how you interact with other people, how you conceive of yourself as a person. I mean, all of this is fluidly being propagated back into the brain and changing the brain based on, on this other layer of culture and the, the memosphere. So, you know, on your account, we have become culturally more left-brained, and it's been to our, mm. our obvious detriment. I don't know if, if that's putting it too cartoonishly, but how do you think of the implications for society here? Mm. Well, here we come to the second part, as you say, of my book, um, in which I go through Western civilization from the Greeks to uh, modernity, looking at the main shifts in the history of ideas. And this is where, obviously, some readers don't follow me. Others see that it actually bears out the thesis in the first part of the book, which is more strictly neurological and philosophy, uh, philosophical. So there are people who say, oh, well, you know, I wish you just stuck to the neurology and philosophy and not gone off into culture. But I think that if you actually understand something about the history of culture, it's almost impossible not to see this. That three times in the West, it seems to me, in the case of the ancient Greeks, whose civilization burst into a sort of flourishing in the 6th century BC and then sort of tailed off towards the year dot, and in the Roman civilization that took over from it in the century before the year dot and came to an end in the 5th century uh, AD. And then again in our time, <clears throat> the rise of the Renaissance in the whatever 14th, 15th century and through to what I see to be the decline in the 20th century, it has followed a path from the maximally fruitful working together of what the right hemisphere can see with what the left hemisphere can see. Now, if we go back to the myth of the master and his emissary, which I think, you know, has very real meaning for the neurological finding I'm talking about, the, the master knows that he needs the emissary. The emissary doesn't know that he needs the master. So the master is not going to cut himself off from the knowledge that the emissary gives him. That's why he appointed the emissary in the first place. Hmm. So we get at these moments in time a wonderful harmony of a sort of systematized rationalistic thinking 
with a more softly rational, i.e. a reasonable judgment on experience in which the sciences and the arts flourish together. And by the way, it is not right that the sciences left hemisphere and the arts are right hemisphere. Both draw very heavily on both. In fact, both are probably most importantly dependent on the right hemisphere rather than Mm. the left. But anyway, the science and arts flourished together. Great new discoveries were made. Societies became more stable, more tolerant, better integrated, produced drama, poetry, music, sailed the seas, mapped the heavens, and so on. And then all of this faded out into a sort of very uniform, highly structured, inflexible, steeply hierarchical, often militaristic way of of being in the world, which had lost all that nuance and individuality. And that sounds awfully crude, but you know, I do take several hundred pages to to give you my vision supported by my understanding of of the history of those times and their culture. And what I think has happened to us is that we have found that it's much easier to articulate the left hemisphere's position. So it's really enormously easy, because after all, it's the articulating hemisphere to articulate in the language that is, as it were, its invention, Mm. its own view of the world. But it's much harder to talk about, yes, but it might be different in a different context, that something only exists in a context, that things only exist in relationship to one another, that a thing and its opposite may actually need one another and may actually at some level merge into one another. If you take extremes too far, you don't go further away from the extreme you dislike, you actually enter into it. That, you know, individuals are the point of the creation of this cosmos, as far as I can see. It's all about individuation, but that doesn't mean fragmentation. But at the moment, we have a diminution of the importance of the individual and the unique with maximal fragmentation into categories that are hostile to one another. We are a bureaucratic society in which things are done according to very crude principles that can be codified, written down in algorithms, and so forth, and don't take into account individual cases and Mm. histories and all the deeper and more implicit things that are getting ruled out in public converse, so that in public converse, everything is taken very crudely, very literally, sound bites are taken out of the whole history of what was being said and engaged in and who was there and what had been said before and what had been said after. Humor, I find now that, you know, it's dangerous to be humorous, not just because practically everybody is sensitive about making somebody a target, but because actually people take it literally. You know, Mm. they've lost the sense that there's irony in life that is constantly a sense of proportion that comes from seeing how crazy we are as human beings. And the right and the healing and the sane way of responding to that is with laughter and with humor. Mm. And we should all have learned in the very early years of life to accept that we make jokes and some people make jokes about us. And that's a very good thing. Mm. I know it may, we may be treading on people's toes here, but anyway, that's no, my, my view. No, if you know anything about what I've done to my podcast audience in podcast past, You'll know that you're I'm on message, am I? implicit condemnation of, <laughs> of wokeness and identity politics. 
and all of the mm. category errors and uh, failures of ethics mm. that happen under the cover of all of that sanctimony and parsing of everyone's speech. You're on very firm ground with my audience there. I find it fascinating that to put this frame, this lens of hemispheric specialization over our questions of what it means to live an ethical life. Right? I mean, how would you, how would you mm. if you imagine a person who is, again, this is a, a crude and you know, this, may, this may be a way of manufacturing cartoons, but I mean, if you imagine a person with two left hemispheres and a person with two right ones, mm. you know, discounting the functional implausibility of some of that, if you just imagine yes. a, a massively dominant version of each, what would you anticipate yes. the ethical life of those people to be like? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very fair question. And I, when I'm asked it, which I sometimes am, and one of the things I say, which is perhaps slightly dodging the issue, is to say that, um, as you note, I always think we begin from a balance historically and end up towards the left. We never end up towards the right. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that the right hemisphere, by implication, understands what the left hemisphere is doing. It appointed it to do it. It doesn't rule it out. But the left hemisphere does rule out because it doesn't understand what the right hemisphere is doing. Right. But that aside, let's, despite its neurological implausibility and despite its even hypothetical metaphysical implausibility, <laughs> let's suppose that there was such a situation. What you would see, and you mentioned values, I thought that was a very important point and figures large and well, fairly large in the book that I've just written. They would have different values. And this goes back to the evolutionary reason of having different kinds of attention, because the left hemisphere's goal is simply to get. It is to be efficient at getting, grabbing, manipulating. And in a quite literal way, when people have right frontal damage and they're beginning to dement, they're left hemisphere controlled right hand now having no counterbalance starts literally plucking at everything in the mm. surroundings so it will try to grab things and it will even try to grab things in a book it sees something it tries to grasp it if this, if it's the other way around if the the left hemisphere is the one that is the left frontal lobe is deficient and the right hemisphere's right frontal lobe is in release mode instead of the left hand grasping things, it explores, it tries to see what's going on. So it gets tentative movements into the environment looking for something. So that says that oh, it's just a nice illustration of the fact that the left hemisphere's value is utility. And utility is basically pleasure. What gives us pleasure, what makes us, it thinks, happier, and what serves its purpose. Whereas the right hemisphere is looking after the rest, basically, which includes what we might call it at some level, the sort of le the level of vitality, which I think we're losing, things like courage and uh, loyalty and humility. Uh, and then at another level, those of beauty, goodness, and truth, which get interpreted by the left hemisphere as merely useful. You know, their beauty exists so that we can select the right mate. Um, goodness is so that we can police morality. You know, truth is a fiction that serves the 
dominant uh, social class in a sort of Marxist kind of way. And my God, the idea of the divine, that's just invented by the hierarchy of, you know, which is literally the, the priest power to subdue the people. These things don't have any kind of real meaning. Hmm. Whereas to the right hemisphere, all those things do mean something. So I think the left hemisphere person would be very like a machine, really, wouldn't understand, would not, you know, keep saying that doesn't compute, would literally be talking in a rather flat voice, because that's what happens when the right hemisphere is damaged, because all that intonation, which helps express what you're meaning comes from the right hemisphere. So you'd have this slightly computer-like person who didn't understand what was going on, couldn't understand human beings and what they meant, and was really just trying to maximize utility. The right hemisphere-only person will, first of all, be robbed, at least initially, of the capacity to speak, and therefore wouldn't be able to formulate things in language, for good or ill, in the way that it does, which is surely, a, <laughs> for most people, most of the time, a rather big deficit. and people would become perhaps over altruistic because mm. I think altruism is largely a right hemisphere phenomenon. And whereas and I'm always saying, I'm going to say it until uh, I, I can hardly bear to say it anymore, there is nothing so good that more and more of it gets better, just as there is nothing so bad that sometimes a little of it might be helpful. And we don't see that in the world we're in. We've decided that X, Y, and Z are good, and therefore we must maximize them to the expense of everything else, mm. and that A, B, and C are bad, and we must simply rule them out. Whereas, you know, we have to have a harmony. We have to have a balance of everything in life. And people who don't have sufficient uh, attachment to their own needs, as well as being able to balance those with a compassionate understanding of the needs of others are not going to survive and are not going to be particularly good examples of what it means to be a human being. So in all these ways, we need to balance things hmm. and arrive at a harmony, which I think is completely out of kilter in the world we're in now. Hmm. Well, I love that. And one of the interesting things that we've just touched on is, if I can dig myself deeper into a hole that mm -hmm. you've invited me into, mm is that I don't believe that the things we've referred to, these completely unbalanced, unrooted concepts of the, the wokery, are signs of compassion. Uh, no. I'm sorry, that's no. not my experience. I, I think they're masks for a kind of self-serving power-seeking in many cases. Of course, everybody's an individual, so I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush, but... Uh, I think that's where the drive may come from. And lots of very decent people fall in with it because, frankly, it's not worth their while trying to resist it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the obvious sign that it is divorced from actual compassion and is born of a very bureaucratic and Procrustean instrumentalizing of other people yes. is in, can be seen in all of those cases where a person is sacrificed to the Twitter mob and the woke mob when it's absolutely clear that he or she has been misunderstood, you know, in many cases willfully, absolutely. where there was no, in, there was no intended harm, mm. right? You're, you're now targeting a person who you know actually is not racist or sexist or whatever the, the sin is, no. but you're just making an example of them because it's, you know, they're basically now a human sacrifice. 
that is uh, needed for your yes. ideology to prevail in this particular culture war. And it's just, it's so clearly callous with respect yes. to the suffering that's being created by, you know, your, your, all of your justicing, that it is, I mean, it is actually psychopathic. It's psychopathically insensitive to the reality of what's going on for that person. I wouldn't disagree with that at all. And interestingly, there's a sort of extreme psychopathic narcissistic tendency in both the worst excesses of what we're branding wokery, a lot of manufactured outrage and self-aggrandization, mm. and <laughs> the psychopathy and narcissism that we've seen in another aspect of the political world quite recently, not naming any names. Yes, yes. If ever, if ever there was a person with two left hemispheres, <laughs> it had to be the great orange goblin who, uh, who should be named I'm, less I'm and less. I'm saying nothing. I'm yes. saying nothing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now, so I, I want to close uh, quite recklessly, perhaps, on a point of possible disagreement, <laughs> okay, which you raised uh, right, you know, okay, on, only to blow by it earlier. This idea of the right. the brain as a possible receiver of consciousness, you know, or a transducer of consciousness, mm. not mm. in fact the seat of consciousness. Yes. yes. And um, yes. well, f first, first, let me just confess my Bayesian priors here. I I'm actually not a committed materialist, although many people would would assume that of me. I mean, I'm a a famous atheist, but it's not because mm. I've I've ruled out any specific ontological possibilities. Yeah, and it's, it's just obvious to me that we actually don't know how consciousness itself is integrated with the, the physics of things. We don't know, in fact, mm. that it emerges on the basis of information processing in complex systems. Although I would argue that we no. do know that most of our specific capacities as minds does emerge on that basis. So, for instance, an ability to produce language or understand language, I think we have good reason to believe that the brain is doing that, and when you disrupt those centers of the brain, there's no other place where the person is, has their language capacity intact. It's not that you have a, an immortal soul that can still understand English, but it just can't get the words out. No, I, actually, an understanding of English has been disrupted when you, when you injure those, the relevant parts of the brain. So I guess my question, this notion that the, the brain may be a kind of radio that receives the mind, I forget who first put this forward. It might have been Bergson. or I mean, I, I mean, Aldous Huxley definitely said this in probably The Doors of Perception, but I think there have been others who have made this claim earlier in philosophy, and it seems to me belied by a couple of things. I mean, what, one is just the, the point I made, what we know on the basis of neurological injury, the claim seems to be that if you damage one part of the brain, you damage one part of the mind. You damage another part of the brain, you damage yet another part of the mind. But if you damage the whole brain at death, well, then we discover that the mind really was elsewhere all this time. And then the analogy to a radio or to a television set would be, you know, the radio program is not in the radio, though if you damage the radio, it's not a surprise that you can no longer hear it in that spot. But it's, it's being beamed to the radio from some other place. But that, it strikes me as a bad analogy, because it is true to say that, the, you know, the, the radio program is entirely intact 
elsewhere and can be received elsewhere. But here, when we're talking about piecemeal neurological injury, it seems talking about the destruction of mind and, and to suggest that all of these cherished subjective facts about us persist at another stratum of reality. Uh, you know, that part seems to me to be at least unfounded, if not you know, wishfully claimed. And yet I, I, I do bracket consciousness itself as a separate phenomenon here, because I, I do, the fact that there's something that is like to be us, it's not yet obvious to me that that is reducible to anything. And if we discovered that something like panpsychism was true, right? If we discovered that electrons themselves had an interior dimension of experience, I wouldn't expect the world to appear any differently than it does. And, you know, again, we could be living in a simulation on, we could be on the hard drive of some alien supercomputer, for all we know, and, and not at all in touch with the base layer of the physics of things. So the universe could be much stranger than, than we suppose. I, I will certainly grant that. But on the point of the human mind merely being transduced by the brain, I feel like we know enough about what the brain is doing to know that much about us that is human is vulnerable, yeah. truly vulnerable to disruption at the level of you know, information processing in neural circuits. So I put that to you as a, wow. well, a skeptical retort to you, what, what you, you said earlier. <laughs> well, you, you chucked that at me at closing time, <laughs> and I seriously do need two hours to respond to that. And in fact, on several occasions, I have given a lecture on the relationship between mm. matter and consciousness that is about two hours long. But just to use perhaps a few of the things that you raised, and I, I, I hadn't a pencil and paper, but I counted about eight things I wanted to come mm. back on you with. But uh, the first is that I don't think it's a strict analogy to say that we know that I mean, the point you're putting across is basically one that is as ancient as the hills. It's Lucretius first made it, hmm. that when you damage the brain, you damage the mind. But that because two things run together doesn't mean that you know which causes which or whether they're both caused by a third party or whether they co-arise or a whole host of other possible things. And that's where we take a long time to cover all of that. But when you say it arises from complexity, you make the idea of language be an image, but I don't think it's a good analogy to consciousness, and I think you know it isn't, because at the end you sort of said, well, consciousness is rather separate. It may well be that a certain faculty that we have requires a certain complexity of the brain, but it doesn't mean that consciousness itself arises from the complexity. As you know, complexity isn't itself sufficient for consciousness, or is it necessary? So that we can see consciousness in, or the signs of consciousness in, much, much simpler organisms. In fact, some cell biologists have argued that a single cell exhibits intelligence, and that's not a by any means easy thing to dismiss, by the way. But it's also true that the interconnections in the cerebellum are four times, uh, well, there are four times as many neurons, and there are factorial four times more connections in the cerebellum than there are in the cerebrum but it's not capable of consciousness, not in the sense that we're normally using that. So, and it's also not, if not, as I say, it's neither sufficient nor necessary. The other thing I would say is that you conflated the idea of, you know, individual consciousness with the notion of consciousness in general. And after all, 
the analogy of the radio station broadcasting to different people, if that was the real, if, if that was to be taken any further, then everybody would be saying the same things and thinking the same things, which they're clearly not. So I'm not arguing, and I don't know that many people that I know are arguing, that the individual consciousness is present exactly outside of the body after death. Mm. I don't know what happens after death. I'm not so stupid as to speculate. I think there are all kinds of perfectly possible outcomes. But one is that we are part of a much greater consciousness mm. And that in some way, the individuality, the quiddity, the hekietas of me is not entirely lost, but was part of what gets folded back into the whole. So that it's rather unfortunate to try and argue that certainly I am saying that somehow uh, it's somewhere else. And use the idea of being somewhere else, because the whole point of the idea of consciousness is it isn't anywhere at all. You know, unlike a receiver. And unlike the transmitter, mm. it's just the best we can get to the idea that it doesn't, the brain doesn't originate consciousness. And I will stake, you know, anything you like on the idea that the brain simply does not originate consciousness. And one more thing, and then I will shut up. You said, okay, when you damage the speech center, it's not like somehow speech comes back, but it does. You see, we can damage an area of the brain. And how does the whole brain know that actually it needs a certain faculty that's suddenly lost and reinvent it somewhere else? This is a point first made by F.C.S. Schiller in the late 19th century. It is worth thinking about. I mean, I have never heard people properly talk about it, but it's familiar that there seems to be some form of consciousness as a whole, that when the bit of the brain that normally did that is damaged, it can find another way of subserving that function. I'm just chucking that in. <laughs> So yeah, so I mean, neuroplasticity and and the recruitment of adjacent areas, n none of that seems to require a anything like dualism or some other ontology there. I mean, that that could all be mechanistic and uh, follow some other pattern of just engagement with the world. We're, we're learning this now that you you can repurpose parts of sensory cortex to other senses and basically. Yes. produce new technologies on that basis. You can help blind people see with their tongues I know. With, with the appropriate yes. devices. Yes. Um, and that doesn't require a kind of uh, numinous gestalt to which that pattern is being fitted, or at least I would allege it, it doesn't. But I guess there's a, a couple of misunderstandings there. I, w I was not trying to push the radio analogy so far as to make us all receiving the, the same no, okay. uh, station, no, but no. to bring it back to the the masses for a moment. Uh, you know, the most common notion of the way in which a person can survive bodily death, it seems to me, is this notion that you know comes to us from Abrahamic religion of there being a soul that is divorceable from the brain. Though, you know, crass neuroscientists have for now at least a century and a half been trying to reduce our personhood to mere nervous systems engaging with the world mechanistically, every man or woman in the street who still believes in, in one or another personal God knows that they really are a, a soul that is, by virtue of some paradox, integrated with the brain, can have a, a material effects on the material world, but it, it is in fact immaterial 
and at the moment of death rises off the brain and goes elsewhere. Now, I don't know where to point toward that elsewhere, but it's somewhere where the person now in a in some numinous form can enjoy the you know what reality is is really all about which is some everlasting life and it's imagined to be a life where I'm not you know I'm not invoking Thomas Aquinas or Augustine here I'm just I'm just talking about people's folk theology it's imagined to be a life wherein the person is intact in some way right and this is borne witness in reports of you know near death experience where someone well you know they'll uh, under cardiac arrest or some other emergency uh, an emergency that I, I we should point out never entails actual brain death right so these are these are near death experiences these aren't actual death experiences but again in in extremis of course the people experience something that provides data for them of the possibility of the survival of death. And these experiences, you know, often entail, you know, seeing a tunnel of light and experiencing tremendous love. And these are, you know, psychedelic experiences and, you know, spiritual experiences that people can have other ways. But many of their faculties are, are intact here. So they'll, they'll have a life review where they'll, you know, so we've got episodic memory that, that comes yeah, yeah. downloaded. And so there's, there's a sense that Maybe the soul is such a thing that at death it can rise off the brain and still understand language, still recognize grandma in the afterlife. You know, it'll be reunited with all the people it loved while alive. And it, it seems to me that that version of what happens after death is at least there's a safe bet against it based on what we know to be true when you damage the brain piecemeal while alive, right? Because if you, if you damage the brain entirely and you're dead, the thesis is basically who you are now survives that whole process intact and goes elsewhere to some happy place or some not-so-happy place. But we know that while alive, if you're damaged in, in significantly, you're actually losing these faculties, right? You're not able to recognize grandma anymore. You might, in fact, not be able to recognize faces at all if you damage fusiform cortex, especially on the right. Anyway, that's, that was the basis of that specific skepticism, which, again, brackets consciousness itself as its own problem. Well, I mean, of course, I can't... I, I, you haven't really offered me something big enough to, to take on this would have to be a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah. But in what you've said, what you've said, you've attributed to me, or, or, or strictly speaking, you haven't attributed to me, but you have substituted for what I'm saying mm. the beliefs of certain people that I don't necessarily share, but I also don't disrespect. And one of the things that I would say about this is we, it really behoves us all to be rather humble. What we know about matter and what we know about consciousness is vanishingly small. I mean, the more we know about matter, the more mysterious it becomes, not mm. the more common it becomes, and therefore a good basis for explaining everything. Physicists are constantly saying this. You know, the, the, the reductionist philosophers and biologists come to us and say, we think it can all be explained by physics, you know, and, and they think they're being very hard-nosed, but... Adam Frank, a, a physicist mm. in um, in, New, in New York, says um, uh, when this happens, we sort of 
look rather sheepish and look at our feet and go, it's all rather complicated because matter is something that we experience in consciousness that we don't know what it is any more than we know what consciousness is. So this doesn't lead to a sort of philosophical nihilism, but it does mean that we ought to be rather careful about applying things that seem to apply to very constricted areas of experience to ones about which we know, frankly, very little, if anything at all. But I would like to sort of finesse the idea of the relationship between the, oh God, I wish I could say more about this, taken me a hundred pages to articulate mm. this problem of the relationship between the one and the many, between the unique and the general, between, as it were, the I that is me and the whole that I believe it is part of, if seen in a certain way. And so when you use the very restricted idea of almost, as you would say, a cartoon, you know, that the person loses their bit of the brain that does grammar, and then what do they know about grammar? I, I have no idea how whatever it is that is immaterial about us exists or where it exists or what its relationship with matter is. I can only speculate. And my speculations don't rule out the idea that whatever is unique about me or you is some aspect of existence in the cosmos that the cosmos has somehow permitted to happen. And it can't go away now that it's happened. It is part of whatever it is that existed and exists and will exist, that bit of mm. uniqueness. And quite what me, mean, people mean can be extraordinarily, you know, touching and, and perhaps rather naive, like, you know, that they exist in, in, on a field somewhere in the sunshine in another world and everything is just, you know, handy-dandy forever. Um, I don't hold that view, but I don't know quite what is going to be going on, but I'm sure it's not as simple as either I'm annihilated or whatever is associated with me and the process that is me is suddenly annihilated, or that I carry on being, God forbid, imprisoned in the me that I am. <laughs> You're going to well. be a Scotsman for all eternity. Uh, wouldn't that be awful? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just think about it. I mean, I'm sick of myself. Uh, on the short term. And I certainly don't want to be stuck with myself in the long term. No, no. I mean, being serious, these are vast philosophical questions, and we can't really deal with them all here. But I just wanted to say, there's a rather lovely image in William James, who I sense you admire. Mm -hmm. And certainly I have come more and more during my life. Uh, from my teens, I admired him. But the more I read, the more I think, the more I think he's an almost unparalleled genius. But in any case, he said that his sort of individual consciousness was like what happens when air passes through the restriction of the vocal cords, and that without the air passing, there wouldn't be any sound. But also, if the vocal cords weren't there, there wouldn't be any sound. And, uh, I, you know, you can pick holes in every metaphor because there's none that really can ever express the relationship between embodied existence and our non-embodied existence, as it were. But it seems to me to be a helpful image, and it's mm. probably as far as I can go for today or tonight as it is for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, you've been very generous with your time. I, I promise I will let you go in, in, a, in mere moments, but I just want to ask you, have you ever <laughs> done psychedelics? Is, is that part of your toolkit? No. No? No. No, nothing? no I haven't. Interesting. I would have liked to do ayahuasca at some time i have sort of thought of it, how nice it would be to experience whatever it is well nice is a 
ridiculous word, but it would be fascinating to experience whatever it is that people do experience on ayahuasca. And in the making of the film, not that film, but another film called Tawai, in which I played a small part, I was offered to go to the Colombian jungle and take ayahuasca. Mm. And actually, my children said to me, it's fascinating, you know, because I'm a grandfather now. Mm. It's wonderful how times change. My children said to me, Dad, you shouldn't really be doing drugs, you know. And, <laughs> and I thought, actually, there is a very humane reason why they said that, which is that one thing I do suffer from periodically, but thank God, not for any chronic periods, is depression. I've had probably mm. four massively serious episodes in my life, three of them very short-lived, because we knew what the treatment was, which was take the right medicines. And I'm very keen not to disturb the balance. And I spoke to people who'd taken ayahuasca, and they said, it's not a picnic. You know, some people have very marvelous experiences. Some people have utterly horrific experiences that haunt them for the rest of their lives. And I've been places yeah. I never want to go, they said to me. Well, care, care of a depression. I have also visited places, corners of the universe that I know exist, that I never, ever want to, to visit again. In fact, yeah. that complicates my idea that there might even in some sense be further existence for the I-ness of me. I really don't want to go any of those places. That was my answer to that question. And now I'm going to get, get myself a grilled steak. I'm sorry if your listeners are all vegetarians. But no. It's a quick I... dinner that will be absolutely delicious. Yes. <laughs> it's been a delight to speak with you, Ian. And there's obviously much more to speak about. But um, for the moment, I will recommend that people read your book. The Master and His Emissary, which the interest of which we have not nearly exhausted. And um, I look forward to the next time, hopefully in person one of these days, on the other side of a vaccine. That would be really wonderful. And as we experienced, it's not the same when you're not together. You don't pick up the cues and you don't have the same relationship as you do when you're in the same room. Can I mention to your listeners that there is a new venture since the summer called Channel McGilchrist, which is not an imperative unless you wish to, which is where a lot of material about me, by me, is gathered. Mm. Uh, there's a very large public area. There's also a member's area, which if you wish, you can join. Oh, great. And it brings you up to date on things I'm doing and on what I've been thinking in the last 10 years, because I had this massive book that my editor told me would be 2,250 pages. Mm -hmm at the moment stalling, ready to go to press. And uh, so my thinking has gone on since The Master and His Emissary. And much of what we've talked about tonight, I've talked about in that book in much greater detail. So I just great. wanted to mention the channel, Miguel Chris. Anyway. Great, great. Thank you very and, much. Yeah, thank you, Ian. Take thank care. Thank you for being and, uh, such a very, very kind interviewer. And I really hope to get to talk again. <laughs>